morning. Thank you, everyone. Good morning, church, and, uh, and happy 4th of July weekend to everyone. Uh, it's a very special day for me as 4th of July, not just uh, being a veteran, but also as a Christian to understand that we're in a nation that celebrates the freedoms to be able to come to a place like this and worship. In fact, only 25% of the world statistics will show that have that freedom and uh, something that I'm so grateful for. I want to take a quick moment and welcome a, a, a special guest of mine. Uh, every, all of you are I'm so happy to see because I'm from this area. But today I have, uh, you guys know I do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, those who know me. And uh, if you've seen the UFC of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you know that a, a family started it called uh, the Gracie family. And so my professor, uh, Master Carlson Gracie Jr. is actually here. We had a Gracie family member here at church. So I want to welcome him and thank him for coming. So, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's always just extremely special. I get to go around now and, and go around the country and uh, talk at different churches, sharing not my story, but really God's story of what he did in my life and what he's doing through Mighty Oaks. And, uh, but coming back to Woods Edge, is, is, it's ground zero for, for me and my family. It's where it all really started, kind of the kind of the, uh, the intersection in my life of change, that changed trajectory of my life and where I was headed in this path of destruction to where, you know, God is leading us now. And God actually used this church to rescue me personally uh, from being one of those suicide statistics or one of those divorce statistics. And my family will be forever grateful for them stepping in in the darkest times of our lives. So thanks to this church and particularly Pastor Jeff Wells and the leaders of this church. This morning, I wanted to, uh, to talk about and really unpack some of the things that I've learned in my own journey of having an encounter with Jesus and also in the journey of, of leading others to Jesus because that's what we do at Mighty Oaks. A lot of people ask, well, what do you do to help veterans? And there's a lot of organizations out there to help veterans. And uh, simply what we do is we, we lead men and women on an encounter to, have a, to understand who it is that, that God created them to be how to be the men and women that God created them to be. And we do that in a period of, of six days. And that's been a lot of the pushback we get because we're competing against like six-month clinical inpatient programs and they go to six months and nothing really changes in their life. And they come to us for six days and many of them are radically impacted and radically changed. And, and we've got accused of all kinds of things. Like, you guys a cult or something? What are you doing in six days? And the truth is, it's, it's not six days. It's not six months. It's not six minutes. It's one moment. The moment that a man or woman could come to this point in their life where they make a decision that the way that they've been doing things, they're not working and they're leading to a path of destruction. And when they could simply align their lives with the lives that they were created to live and be the people they were created to be, that's when they'll find not only hope and restoration, but also their purpose moving forward. But how many of you know that when you're on a path to have an encounter with Jesus or leading others, there's going to be obstacles? Anytime you're on that destination, on that journey, there's going to be obstacles and opposition always when you're trying to find your way to, to Christ or, or lead others that way. And I want to share a, a, a different kind of journey to start, start off my message this morning. And it was, it was uh, from Afghanistan. And for those who don't know, I was a force reconnaissance Marine, which is special operations in the Marine Corps. And I was part of a JSOC, which is Joint Special Operations Command Task Force from 2003 to 2007. For four years, I served in this task force uh, and did eight deployments in Afghanistan and the Afghanistan region. And uh, on this particular uh, journey that I want to tell you about, I was uh, going into an area called the FADA. And the FADA is, uh, stands for the Federally Administered Tribal Area. And really what it is, it's a, it's a gray area between Afghanistan and Pakistan that, that kind of uh, blurs the border because tribal people who live in these areas don't really know where the border is. So they don't know if they're in Afghanistan or Pakistan. They just know they're in the village that they've been in for thousands of years. And, uh, and so 
the way this works with the Taliban is they know this area is kind of a safe zone where the conventional military forces can't operate. So they use that place to regroup and reestablish themselves and, and, uh, and hide out while they come go in and out of Afghanistan fighting the U.S. US and allied forces. And so unconventional special operations forces have the privilege of going into the FATA and, and uh, going after the bad guys there. And so I was tasked with going into this area in a very remote tribal area and do what's called a feasibility study to assess future operations in that area. And because we didn't want to go in a conventional type role, I went by myself with one other person that was working with me. His name was Shahar. He was a Pakistani, knew the area really well. And we also had a driver. His name was Natik. And Natik is really interesting in the story because he's only a 19-year-old city boy, not really a mountain guy that we were taking him up in the mountains, but really trusted him. And so we brought him in there to drive with us. And we were, we were driving a Land Rover Defender. Really cool truck, uh, get over mountains and go through water. It's really, really fun to drive that thing around Afghanistan. But we were, uh, we were going in this area, and if you ever uh, seen this part of the world, it's just so beautiful. Like you think of Afghanistan and you think of desert, that's not really how the eastern part of Afghanistan is, particularly in Afada. You have the, the Himalayas, the Hindu Kush, and Karakom Mountains all meet there. So they push up these giant mountain ranges all the way up to like 30,000 feet. And we were driving through this area, and, and uh, uh, Shahar and I are just looking out, looking out the windows at the beauty of these mountains and just kind of mesmerized. And all of a sudden, the valley started to close in. And like uh, many areas in these roads, the valleys close in, it becomes really tight. And the road becomes really tight, probably only wide enough to barely fit two cars. And on one side of the road was uh, thousands of feet up of, of cliff and rock. And the other side of the road was a cliff going down in, in the Whitewater River. And the other side of the river, another cliff going up. So we were in this really tight area driving through. And as we made this turn, we came into this village. And this village was uh, immediately uh, known to us that it was not a good place to be. There was no women around at all. Uh, only the kids were little boys. And the, and the men there were definitely uh, stereotypical jihadist warfighters. They were Taliban. They had the big beards. They had, uh, they had uh, vest, tactical vests on. They had AK-47s. They had that steely look in their eyes that they were, they were fighters, and they were probably just coming back from fighting U.S. forces, and we're driving through their, ta- their hometown. And uh, they're, we're in this Land Rover Defender, and they're checking us out and looking at us. I'm the white guy in the car, so they're, like, they're wondering what I'm doing there. And, uh, and we just got quiet. And particularly, me, me and Shahar was quiet, but Natik in the front was sweating bullets because he'd never been in a place like this before. We thought that was kind of... And, and as, we, as we left the town, drove out of that town, Shahar gives a... I'm like, what? He goes, those guys were all Taliban. And if we would have stopped there, man, they would have killed us all. And I don't know why, we just started laughing, like really loud. It may not seem funny to you guys, but it was funny to us at the time. <laughs> we, just, we, were just, we were just laughing. We thought, it was, we thought it was like hilarious that we drove through this, this village in, a, in kind of a dark sense of humor. But what was even funnier is this Natik wasn't laughing. He was, he was scared to death in the, in the front seat of this car. And our laughter was quickly stopped when we made it about 500 yards out of that village and, and the traffic stopped. And I looked over the roofs of the cars in front of us with uh, traffic, all these cars that were stopped in traffic. And the, the road had been washed away from a landslide. And we were stuck in this village that we were just joking about being killed in. And uh, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't a good situation to be in. And everyone's out of their cars. And all of a sudden, Shahar jumps out of the car and he starts taking, taking off running. I'm like, where's he going? He goes over the landslide. And I'm, I'm yelling at him. I'm like, where are you going, man? And as soon as he gets over the landslide, the whole thing washes out. And he's on the other side of it. I didn't know if he even got washed out with it. And now I'm stuck by myself with this driver 
in the middle of this Taliban village. So I'm like, I want to get away from this car. So I grab my backpack, I grab my hiking, my ice axes for hiking, and I had an iridium satellite radio, and I'm trying to call my team back, back in, uh, in the rear, and, and, uh, and I can't get out because the crowd, cloud cover in the mountains is so strong, I couldn't get a satellite signal. So I don't even have communications. And I tell you, like, it, it, was, pre- it was a pretty scary moment. I felt completely alone. I didn't know what to do. I'm pretty witty, and, I, and I, particularly at that time in my life, I knew a lot of what to do. I had about three weeks of, three weeks of supplies in my backpack, but it did get about 20 below at night, and, uh, and it was, was mountains on both sides of me, so I knew I was in a bad situation. It was uh, about an hour later that Shahar came over that, that, that landslide, and that was the greatest sight to see his face smiling and coming over that landslide. He's like, Mr. Chad, Mr. Chad, come on, let's go. I found a, I found a ride, and I didn't hesitate. I just took off following him. We climb up over the side of that mountain, and as we were going over that mountain to get out of that village, I looked back behind me, and I saw the most incredible thing. And I'm not exaggerating. At least 100 people were following us up the side of that mountain, families with suitcases coming out. They were all stuck there, and I asked Shahar, I'm like, what are they following us for? He's like, man, they, they didn't want to be there any more than we did. They were just as scared, and they wanted to get out of there. And as soon as we got on the other side, he had lined up a, a Honda Accord with some unwitting driver, and we paid him 60 bucks and got to our destination. But the, it was the most amazing thing to think that I had found myself alone, facing serious danger, real danger, and someone had to lead me forward. But when I followed them, others followed me. And many of you have, have heard, in this church have heard my complete testimony, and I'll just give some wave tops today. But for those who hadn't heard my testimony, one year after I got out of that village, that Taliban village, I found myself right here in the woodlands. I had been... I had completed my eighth deployment. I had been diagnosed with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. I was in a, a complete despair. I was angry. I was frustrated. I was scared. And just like being in that, on the other side of that landslide in that village, I felt completely alone. And no doubt, no doubt I was facing a serious danger, not from the Taliban, but from the real enemy, the devil, who was trying to destroy me and my family, and from myself, who didn't want to get the help I needed and was facing myself. That began a three-year downward spiral in my life, right? Uh, it, it began a, a downward spiral that left me living alone in an apartment, divorcing my family, sitting in my closet in my apart- apartment with my pistol, contemplating how I was going to take my own life and make it look like an accident because I thought my children would be the one that found me, trying to make a decision to, to do that and the, the, the toll that took on me. Uh, but but God, God had a different plan. I love those words, but God. He had a different plan for me and for my family. It didn't take uh, only an hour like it took for Shahar to come over that mountain and get me. It would take three years before God would send someone to rescue me from that situation, from that darkest valley of my life. Although I, I could imagine there was probably, he probably sent people before that. I either ignored them or my pride wouldn't let me get the help I needed. But I truly needed I truly needed someone to lead me forward, to lead me out of that valley, to lead me out of that darkness I was in. And it started with my amazing wife, Kathy. And many, many of you in this church know Kathy. And I, and I tell you, I wouldn't be here today not speaking. I mean, I wouldn't be here today at all, alive, if it wasn't for my wife, Kathy. That's where it started with. When we were separated, my wife would come right here in this church, Woods Edge. And it's hard for me to come in Woods Edge and not look at that spot on that wall in the back because... People would say that she would stand against that wall, not on Sundays. Every day she'd come in this church and she would cry for me and for my family. She thought our marriage was over, so she wasn't crying for me like to be back together. She was crying for me because she thought she, she, was, she cared about me. She wanted to see me get out of that, that, that pit that I was in. She said she was so angry 
that she didn't know how to pray for me. So she would pray that, God, let me see Chad the way you see Chad. Let me love Chad the way you love Chad. Let me forgive Chad the way that you forgave Chad. That's what she would pray for me. You know, this church supported her and she found hope here and she found the strength to pray those prayers here. And I'm truly a living testimony of a, uh, the answered prayers of a power of a praying wife. Um, and she fought for me when I, when I was weak and I'd given up. I think those prayers gave her the strength to come in and challenge me the way I needed to be challenged. And she came to my, uh, my apartment and we had been separated for three months and it was just so, such a terrible situation with our kids and, and the people that uh, were around us in our life at that time. And she had the final divorce papers and she brought them there and she asked me a question. She asked me how I could have been as successful as I was in the military. She's seen me become a force recon marine, how tough that was to do. Uh, she's seen me train for these deployments, go to these schools, do all these, all these crazy workups to go to Afghanistan. She also seen, if you guys don't know, I was a professional MMA fighter, me training for these camps to fight in MMA, like cutting 35 pounds, my body like sucking down to make weight and training while I'm training while I'm, uh, all beat up and banged up. And she watched me have the discipline to do all this. And she's like, how can you do all that? And when it comes to your family, you'll quit. And for me, there's no more soul-cutting word than be called, to be called a quitter. But she was absolutely right. I, I had been successful at all the professional things in my life. But when it came to the most important things in my life, I had quit at. When it came to being a husband, being a father, being that young 17-year-old kid that raised his hand and said he wanted to do something important with his life, I quit on all those things, including my own health. And it, it, was, uh, it was at that moment that I decided I was going to turn it around. I didn't know how, but I knew, I knew I couldn't do it by myself. And that's where this church stepped in. A man named Steve Toth, who was an elder at this church, stepped into my life and began to mentor me, began to challenge me. Others, like a guy named Sammy Pyle, who was here at this church, started, started working with me. And then Pastor Jeff really stepped into my life and wrapped his arms around me and helped to bring me forward. What these men taught me through that journey was that when nothing else worked in my life, and I tried everything. I tried the pills for anxiety and, and PTSD. I tried the counseling. Those things didn't work. I even tried MMA and jiu-jitsu and was successful at it. And by the way, I still love MMA and jiu-jitsu. I train jiu-jitsu every day. I'm in ministry. It's the hardest job you could ever be in. And it's very frustrating. So when I have a bad day at, the, at, the, at ministry, I go to the gym. I find like some 19-year-old stud and I choke him out. <laughs> it, makes, it makes me feel great and I get back to ministering the gospel. And, uh, but you know, you could have something that's good for you and you could abuse it. And I took jujitsu, which was good for me, and I abused it. I'd spend 10, 12 hours a day training in it. It didn't fix my problems. It just, it helped me delay my problems. The truth was everything I had tried didn't work to take me out of that darkness that I was in. And I had to try something different. One of the things we say at Mighty Oaks has become kind of a token phrase is, if what you're doing isn't working, then why not try something different? Right? If what you're doing isn't working, why not try something different? Nothing had worked. It was time for me to try something different. And Steve in this church led me into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And when I, when I discovered that all those things didn't work, but when I simply aligned my life with the life that I was created to live, I didn't only, not only find restoration in my family and my life, but I found hope, I found purpose, and I found a future. And as I started leaving that, that, that dark valley I was in, and I looked back, just like leaving that village in, in, a, in that village, that Taliban village, when I looked back, I saw others following me. And, and I, I couldn't believe it. Other veterans were following me. And I discovered that I wasn't the only one. All that time I was going through that, that thoughts of taking my life, the thoughts of divorce, 
I thought I was the only one. I thought no one could be suffering like I'm suffering. No one could feel this, this shame, this depression, this anger. No one could feel this. No one's marriage could be as bad as mine. The truth was there was a lot of other people. In fact, 22 other veterans a day reaching a hopeless point to where they take their lives. 85% of, of combat veteran families divorcing their families. I wasn't the only one. And when I started leaving that valley, other people started following me. And it has been the most humbling thing to see. The thing is, when you find yourself in a seemingly impossible situation, you often think that you're, you're all alone in it. And it's very easy to focus on yourself and your own circumstances, your own self-pity. And when you do that, you really miss the fact that others around you are facing similar challenges. And you could be moving out of that situation together. We all, we all need a, a leader to follow. There's always someone we should be following. But there's also other times in our lives when we need to be that leader for others. And just like when I left that village and Shahar led me out, when I looked back and was amazed that others were following me and being led out of that dark moments in my life from the people in this church, I'm still humbled today as I, as I move forward to see people following me at Mighty Oaks. We're all going to, in our lives, we're all going to follow someone and, and be followed by others, right? That's, that's part, of, part of life. The question is, who are you following and where are they going? And for those following you, will they end up in a place that you're proud of? If people follow you in your journey, at the end of your life, will they follow you to a place that you'll be proud of? That's a question that I really had to ask myself many times as a father, as a, a leader of, this, of, of, of Mighty Oaks, you know, is where, where I'm leading people is a place that I'll be proud of when they get there. But you, you must know that if, the, if your path is leading people to Christ or having an own encounter with Christ, there are always going to be obstacles there's going to be oppositions. There's going to be massive landslides and threats of the enemy that's going to take you from your destination. But regardless, you must move forward. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is uh, the story of four friends who had a paralyzed friend that they want to get well. And it must be a story that God loves as well because it's written in, in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, in Luke 5, verses 17 through 19, it says, One day Jesus, Jesus was teaching... And Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village in Galilee, from, from Judea and Jerusalem. And, they, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him to the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way because of the crowd, they went on a roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. And he was healed, by the way. So... A lot of times we read stories in the Bible and we kind of just brush through them and don't realize the significance of them. This story is a powerful story. One, it talks about Jesus healing people, making the blind see, making the, the deaf hear, making the paralyzed people walk. This is a big deal. Healing people is a big miraculous deal. This was going on and all these people were coming to see him. And by the way, not all the people that were coming to see him were fans of Jesus. There were some people that wanted to get healed. There were people that wanted to witness it happen. But there were also pe people who wanted to catch him doing this so they could persecute him. A lot of religious leaders that, didn't, that, that wasn't a fan of Jesus were going to, to see this happen. And then there was these four friends who had a friend that was paralyzed laying on a mat. You ever been around a paralyzed person before or, or a really sick person when they're bitter and angry? I'll bet their friend was bitter and angry. I think of the veterans at Mighty Oaks when, when family members try so hard to get them to come to our program and they don't want to go. They're skeptical. They're cynical. They're like, man, I'm not going to this thing. That, that's not going to work for me. And this guy's probably laying on the floor just angry and, and they're telling him, hey, good news. This guy, Jesus is coming to town and he's going to heal you. He's like, I don't want to hear it. 
right? And, but the, the problem with this guy's situation is he didn't have a choice because he was paralyzed. So they picked him up and carried him, right? That's, that's a kind of convenient part of the story. He didn't, he didn't have a choice. And, uh, and I love when family members corner people and bring them the mighty oaks. There's always going to be resistance. When, someone's, when someone needs to be truly, true healing, there's always going to be this resistance and, and reluctance to go. But as, the, as we uh, lead people to Jesus, if we love them enough, we're going to do the hard things to get them there. And, and then along the way, they're carrying this man to, to, to Jesus to be healed. And they run into another problem. They get to the house to where Jesus was and the, it was so crowded, they couldn't even get him inside. Right? There's always going to be obstacles to getting people to Jesus. When we bring our veterans to our program, there's tons of people that always, there's tons of circumstances that get in the way. But I love the fact that people would do anything to get people to Jesus. They would do anything. And, and these people did the same thing. They actually carried the man Onto the roof. I don't know how they do it. The Bible didn't say how they did it, but they got the man somehow on top of the roof. And then they figured out where Jesus was and they started digging a hole in the roof. Now, this isn't like the woodlands roof, like a piece of plywood, tar paper, and uh, shingles. This is like a Middle Eastern roof mud, sticks, big, thick roof. They start digging a hole in it. Not a little hole, a big enough hole to stuff their paralyzed friend through, right? A big hole. Uh, now, I, I'm, I have a big imagination, so I'm wondering, Jesus in this room, preaching, healing people, and all of a sudden, someone starts digging a hole in the roof. Did he get distracted? I, if a baby starts crying in the back while I'm speaking, I get distracted. But Jesus is in there, and he's digging a hole, and they shove their friend through, and he's healed, right? But something, something really significant happens when they shove him through. In, in the room where Jesus was, and this paralyzed, this paralyzed man was in front of Jesus before he was healed, Right, something really amazing happens that we have to take note of when we're reading this story. Now, there were, there were, again, there were some people in the room that wasn't fans of him. There were some skeptics, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. I got my teenage son, Hayden, here with me. I've heard him use the word haters before. Right, there, were some, there were some haters in the room with Jesus that day. But before he, was, he healed the man, he actually forgave him. And you think, what was that about? Like, why did he forgive Jesus? In verse 20, it says, when Jesus saw their faith, the faith of their friends, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. He forgave him before he healed them. If this man was laying paralyzed up here on the stage and asked any of us what would be his biggest need, we'd probably say his biggest need would be for him to walk. But Jesus didn't do that. He actually forgave him for his sins first. Why would he do that? Because he recognized his biggest need and he wanted to demonstrate it to us, to show us priority. Why does Mighty Oaks work? Why does what we do with veterans work? Because when you could heal, the, you could heal a person's body Right, the VA could be as great. We complain about the VA, but the VA could be as great as it could be. But it, it's focused on the mind and the body. You could heal a person's body, you could heal a person's mind, but unless you could heal a man's soul, he will never be truly healed. He will never be truly well. And that's what Jesus demonstrates: that he healed the man's soul before his body. Right, and and Jesus is the healer of, of the souls of men, and no one else, and nothing else in the universe or eternity can do that. Jesus told the man, "Your sins are forgiven." And the haters in the room, they begin to think in verse twenty-one, blasphemy. Like, who is this guy? Who who is this to forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. But Jesus knew their thoughts, and in verse twenty-three, he says, "Oh, you think that was a big deal?" I paraphrase right here. Right, <laughs> he says. Hey, paralyzed guy, stand up and walk. And the man actually jumped up. And in verse 26, it says, And they were amazed and they glorified God and they were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. Listen, if you catch anything else in, in this message. When you stand up from where you were to where God has taken you, people will be amazed and God will get the glory. Not this church, 
not your pastor, not a ministry, not your friends. God will get the glory. We just get to be a part of it. And, and you'll bring others to hope who witness this. When they see you, they will have seen remarkable things that only God can do. And it will be a proof of God's power, his love, and his grace to everyone watching. And that will be the moment where you transition from being led out of the darkness to leading others out of the darkness. To be able to take people to a place worth going into an encounter with Jesus Christ. I remember sharing with Pastor Jeff Wells the burden, the burden that God put burning in my heart to share what I discovered with other military warriors. I was, as people say, guys have encounters with Christ, they're on fire. I was on fire. Like, I learned that I wasn't in that valley alone, that 22 other warriors a day were taking their life, that these divorces were happening. And I thought, man, someone, someone's got to do something about this. You know, why not me? It was like one of those moments, like, you're just like, this is, this is not right. Someone, something has to be done. Why not me? I walked away from, you know, everything that we had. Kathy and I walked away from everything that we had to share this message with other veterans. It wasn't because we wanted to. It wasn't because it was a good idea. It was like if we were dying of stage four terminal cancer and, like, someone gave us the cure, you can't be quiet about that. Like, you have to say something. You have to share it. I didn't want to share it. I was obligated to share it. And that's what we've been doing ever since. And Pastor Jeff... And he, he's an amazing pastor and a very wise man. He asked me some really tough questions. He's seen people excited before and then fizzle out. He asked me some really tough questions, but I remember the moment very clearly when he knew, just as I did, that God had put a, a calling on my heart to do this ministry, Mighty Oaks. And he commissioned Kathy and I to start Mighty Oaks right here from the stage and launched us out. And they still, he still supports us today personally, as well as uh, this church through the Outside the Walls ministry, financially they support us as well. And many members in this church support Mighty Oaks. Uh, a little update, we've reached over 100,000 active duty troops on bases with our message. And, and, and why is, I'll tell you why that's so important. Because when we started Mighty Oaks, we started as a faith-based ministry. And everyone, and I say everyone, a lot of people said, don't do that. You'll never be able to get active duty troops to let you come on base and, and minister to them. The chaplains are under such restrictions and they would never send guys to you. And, uh, and I, I just said, man, this isn't my ministry. It's God's ministry and I'm gonna let him figure that out. And we did it anyway. We, we go on base. I get to go to every Marine Corps boot camp cycle on the West Coast to speak to the recruits and give a message on spiritual resiliency. We, give, we just wrote a book on spiritual resiliency. Uh, three, came out four months ago. We've given away 25,000 copies to the troops. And that we've had over, in our legacy program, which is that six-day program, we've had over 1,416 graduates, 1,416 graduates from our program. It's, and just like Pastor Jeff said in that video, we've had zero, zero suicides from any of those graduates. And above that, we've, we started tracking about two years ago our salvation rate. We have about an 80% rate of uh, salvations. And we, we uh, wanted to, yeah, it's, I wanted to share a glimpse of that because so many people at Woods Edge are involved. So I took a video. We just had a session at Sky Rose Ranch, which was at a ranch in California. Uh, we had 39 warriors at the ranch. And I wanted to share a video of what a week looks like there. Thank you, guys. This is the picture of the graduating class uh, that, that we just finished. And we do about 30 of those a year. And by the way, all of our programs are 100% free. We even cover travel. So if anything else, when you leave, there's an information table right out that door. And uh, we also have some things in, our book, in the bookstore here. But gra at least grab a flyer because you never know when God's going to cross your path with a veteran. And you may give them that flyer and, and not only save their life but save their eternity.
And so uh, I just want to also say that if this message resonated with you at all, or maybe you think, uh, well, I'm not a veteran, I never suffered with PTSD or whatever, well, you know, the fact is you don't have to go to Iraq or Afghanistan or Vietnam to face hardships in this, in this world and in this life. There's a million ways that you could be hurt, but I truly believe there's only one way, way to get well, and that's through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Can I pray with you? Lord, I just thank you so much for the opportunity to, to share, not my story, Lord, but your story, the, the story of, of restoration, the story of hope, the story of uh, uh, fi- finding out what we were created to be by having a relationship with the Creator. And, uh, Lord, that you would reveal your purpose uh, in, in me. And, Lord, I pray for each person here, Lord, that uh, something in this message will have resonated with them, that they'll feel challenged and convicted in a way that will, that will push them to go forward, regardless of where their relationship is with you, Lord. And I just pray specifically right now for, the, for the, the unbeliever, the skeptic, the person that came in here just, to, just for the 4th of July, Lord, that they will be uh, challenged to, to have an encounter with you, Lord, just like I did to pursue a relationship with you, Lord, to be the very man or woman that you created them to be. And I thank you for the opportunity to share that message. In Jesus' name, amen.